All right, guys, let's talk about Jägermeister. They could have written a totally normal ad here, like a really classic ad. They could have talked about their history, the 56 botanicals. It could have been all salesy and cutesy, but they know you don't care. Jägermeister doesn't want to be like all those other ads you've seen and heard. They just wanted to say two things. Jägermeister is great, but everyone has been drinking it wrong. Damn, that's cold. Drinking it wrong? All right, if that's the case, how should we be drinking it? They are so glad you asked, and so am I, Dad. I'm here to help you. Ice cold is the answer, at zero degrees Fahrenheit to be exact. Ice cold shots of Jägermeister. That's it. That's all they want to tell you. So wherever you are, if you're hanging out with friends or at the bar, call the shots. Cheers with ice cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume, imported by Mast Jägermeister US, White Plains, New York. Lots of things go better together. Hockey, food, golf, peanut butter and jelly, Gojo and Golik, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. What? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Good morning. What's up, everybody? It's Brandon Newman. Welcome to Gojo. Uh, with me, as always, is my co-host here, Mike Go Jr. How you doing, Mike? Just did laps in my garage and then went to my Uber Eats driver's basement. How we doing, Brandon? Doing great. You never cease to surprise me, Mike. <laughs> it's amazing how little it takes for us to feel shiny and new around here. We're like 60 right. podcast episodes in and we're already flipping it up to try and keep it spicy in the bedroom. Oh, man. They, hey, people have no idea what's coming to them for this podcast, but we're, we're changing every hour. You're welcome. Everything will change today. <laughs> today! Or it kind of will stay the same, too, because we got a great show for you guys today. Very excited NFL divisional previews roll along with the NFC North. Mm -mm -mm. And uh, I don't know if you guys heard, but uh, a lot of stuff going on in the news in the NFC North. We'll talk to Courtney Cronin, ESPN Bears reporter and former ESPN Vikings reporter. Also a great ESPN radio host who I got to work with on a number of occasions while I was at the Worldwide Leader about the latest with Roquan, Roquan Smith, the Chicago Bears linebacker that's in the middle of a sit-in. And Aaron Rodgers is a little bit peeved with some of the young receivers on his team at this point in camp. And, of course, we'll check in with America's team, the Detroit Lions. Ooh, love it. <laughs> the, 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 motor, the motor team, Ford, Ford Motor Com Company. I'm sorry, I can't say words. It's okay. The point is, you're efforting greatly. And while we're looking forward to that, Brandon, in the meantime, I think we have two very clearly biggest stories in sports today. I don't okay. think there's very much mincing words when it comes to this. I think we have two very clear candidates for the two biggest stories in sports today. Do you want to hear the first one, Brandon? Uh, honestly, right. I prefer the second first. Um, if you could flip it around in your brain. Uh Wait, Go. speaking of flipping things around in your brain, I have to ask you a question before we get to the two biggest stories in sports today. Okay, okay. I saw this online, and I had actually had this conversation with my sister not too long ago, Brandon. When Shots you think in. about school subjects, I saw this tweet courtesy of Jacqueline Antonovich. Um, okay. 
who said, my family is currently in a heated argument. Help me out. You're back in high school. What folder colors do you assign to your classes? The subjects are oh. math, science, his history, and English. The colors are blue, red, yellow, and green. Do you have a go-to on this? Because my sister maintains that without fail, it is as follows. Now, I don't remember it clearly wait enough minute, to have an minute. opinion, but my sister has this. Okay, well, I, I I almost don't want to be tainted by her. Can I tell you mine real quick? All right, let me tell you yours. Tell me yours real quick, and let me see okay. if it lines up with hers. Green is always science. Red is always English. I think math is always blue. And what's the other two? Yellow uh, is... Yellow and history. I think that fits. Yellow and history, yep. So, yeah, you had no answer overlapping with really? her. Did she have history and English flipped? No, she has literally all of yours changed. So she went math is red, English is blue, science is yellow, and history is green. I agree with math is red. That one I do remember, and math was always the red notebooker folder for me. Really? Red, red was always English for me. I always thought, I always went, red words. I always thought about that in the Jesus Christ. Amen. I always, well, and then I, green, for science, I feel like that's like synonymous. See, I actually think I went yellow for science, green for history. And then I always went red for math and blue for English because you got to think about it. We're conditioned from an early age. You think about when you had to do a lot of those tests, what were you given those small blue books that you had to write most of the essay answers True. in when you were in school? So I just always associated blue, written words, English. English, that one. Math is red because it struck fear into my heart. It was the loudest one. Usually mm. it was the hardest class I was taking at any given time. So red was like danger. I, I flipped mine. Mine was a heat map of what I liked, and red was like, oh, that's my shit. So English was mm. my shit, contrary to popular belief if you've listened to this podcast. At Gojo Show on Twitter, let us know. <laughs> the subjects, again, math, science, English, and history. The colors, blue, red, yellow, and green. Let us know what that. the deal is. Also, download, subscribe, rate, and review Gojo wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and put that in the reviews. Shout out to Lisa Frank and your uh, psychedelic little uh, puppies and kittens. And uh, that, that was hot in the streets when we was coming up. That's the other thing that threw this off to me was one, the existence of five subject notebooks, because a lot of times I go for the five bagger there and just take them all out in one fell swoop. And then you're yep. right, Lisa Frank and the existence of specialty notebook or uh, specialty folder covers definitely yeah. fucks this argument up too. So change the game. Back when them skeletons was, was doing X game shit. Man, it was wild. They zombies. Could... Zombies. With it really was on. some weird, like, subliminal <laughs> messaging that was going on. No wonder our generation's so messed up. Oh, man. And God bless the, the ones below us. It also is probably why The Walking Dead's been going on for 20 seasons, because clearly we've had zombie fascination built in from the jump. That was just right. part that, of this. That and X Games. And that. Tony... And, Tony Tony Hawks, uh, let's not let's let's move on to real stuff. Shout out to Tony Hawks Pro Skater, uh, Brandon. The biggest story in sports today, I think, actually belongs to the world of golf because we got to see Tiger Woods footage of him getting off a private plane on a private one day shot through a fence hole of Tiger Woods getting off the plane in Wilmington, Delaware, which is the site of this week's BMW Championship. But he is there beforehand to meet <laughs> Wait a minute, with, wait a minute. What? Okay. Okay. 
What? I I I knew that there was a uh, a championship going on. I thought you were accidentally trying to uh, bring it back to X Games. I thought you meant BMX. I was going to correct you, but no, it was the BMW. I'll let you continue to do your shit. You did the you Freudian slip in your head. I I still managed to make the right letters come out of my mouth for now. For now. <laughs> so Tiger showed up in Delaware on Tuesday, not to play any golf. But no, Tiger Woods, a long time, Ricky Fowler, Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, Patrick Cantlay, and about 20 or so of golf's biggest stars on the PGA Tour were meeting there to talk about what to do with Live Golf. These guys apparently were all getting together here in an effort to rally support for the PGA Tour in its ongoing battle with now-rival Live Golf series. And Brandon, this is interesting on a number of levels. First and foremost, Tiger Woods. If you're listening, come on home, Mike. Come on home, man. Like I think, you, I think you didn't listen. do the LeBron James where you started spending money on this process early enough for us to just go along with the charade around your hair. Tiger's mailing in the effort right now, so just start to go with the tight baldy, man. It's time. Okay. You're ready. You can pull this off. Thank you for explaining. I was going to let people know if you don't know what come on home is. So we all say to each other, us men, when it's like, you know what, maybe get rid of those little follicles, those little shades of hair on your top and, you know, rock the baldy. It's Mr. Clean time. You don't want to come out here looking like Homer Simpson. That's not the way. I'm someone who lived that life, Brandon. I waited too long and I didn't have someone who had a stern chat with me about that until Bamani Jones came into my life and basically just gave me the ultimatum and said, it's time, man. Bamani had been on that. Now, Bamani has since betrayed the bald community and has grown back a pretty luscious head of hair, but at that time, he was my Sherpa. And so I just want to do for others what was done for me. I have been better for it on the back end. And I look at pictures of me now like in situations like this and i wonder why did i hang on so long to something that was clearly gone well it was it was because you had hair there mike and that's that's what i'm fighting for tiger like the hair's there i think he holds on to it his profession he wears a hat you you can decide to wear a hat when you want in your profession because we do this from our homes but when he's out there he's got a hat on mike i think if you if your profession is wears a hat i think you can keep the hair on the sides and keep the illusion going for as long as possible it's Tiger Woods. It's taunt. It's a fair point. We've only seen it show up after he gets off the 18th hole in any given round, but that was the first part of this. But, Brandon, I, I was interested because this is now, I think, the single greatest validating factor in what we've seen of mm. Live Golf so far, where yep. for it to be addressed like this in some sort of players-only meeting amongst the PGA guys, there's clearly a threat here, and we've seen Tiger and Rory especially have been super outspoken against all this. I heard Stephen A. Smith earlier today on first take because Stephen A.'s got to have a take on everything. He's back from vacation here. He's ready to lift the whole network up on his own. But he said that he was pissed off by this because the notion that they would be trying to subvert competition in a world where if Live Golf wants to go out and spend this money, apparently forgetting that it's blood money that's being spent over there, then this should be a choice that golfers are allowed to make. The interesting part of this to me, Brandon, is the easy retort to that and what this situation signifies is actually something that Stugatz has been right about all along. Stugatz was right. Stugatz was right. This is them striking back. Live Golf's only weapon is fat piles of money. 
They don't have deep competitive fields. They don't have television rights that we're going to get this product to the masses in ways that are easily seen. They have big fat piles of money. The only weapon that the PGA Tour has is the four majors. And Tiger Woods talked about in the past, not knowing the way the World Golf Organization was going to administer points from the Live Golf Tour, potentially over to the PGA Tour. That's how people qualify for the majors. And he bemoaned the fact that some of these young players might miss out on that opportunity, which, you know, has been super good to Tiger Woods and building the giant myth and legend of Tiger Woods. I... I, I understand why the PGA would do this because, again, they're trying to be... This is now a competition to see who can be the biggest and the best and who can monopolize golf's best resources. And all you can do is use the tools at your disposal. And the Live Golf League uses fat piles of cash and the PGA is going to use the majors. And really, like Stu Gott said, it's going to be about the masters. Can they get the masters and the majors in the way that we heard about before to potentially shut their doors on these dudes? Because if it is, then all of a sudden you cap this at a certain growth point for some golfers and you'll only get so much if you're lived. So I can understand this, but in a roundabout way, this has actually been the single most validating moment for the Live Golf group. I, that, that's what I was going to say. I'm like, this makes me feel like my original take that this is, has an expiration date on it is a bad take, like my, my, all the rest of my takes. Like, Tiger Woods and Ricky Fowler are getting together. What are they going to get? Are they getting together to, to talk to the media that's like, please stop asking us live golf questions? No, they're, they're getting together to try to what like home alone the live tournament like uh, trick them and <laughs> piss them off and mess them up until they run back home and decide not to steal their stuff and they st- stop stealing the players like i don't i don't know what can be done that's why it feels so weird that it's gotten to this point like i feel like live the live tour is now the bully in this situation like they not you said the only weapon they have is fat cash but in america that's the biggest weapon there is It is, and for most guys that is. Like, Tiger Woods can't comprehend this because he has fat stacks of cash and also a pile of majors that have made him the best golfer of a generation. Like, I can understand why Tiger looks at the PGA and says, hey, the devil I know is better than the devil I don't. And you can play moral high ground in all of this, Brandon. The one thing I can go back to, because we've talked a lot about this, and we've heard a wide range of opinions on the fact that this is backed by Saudi money that's there to sports wash their reputation. And right. the people taking it, looking at potentially nine-figure deals, hundred. You know, we heard Tiger Woods, according to Greg Norman, turned down between seven hundred and eight hundred million dollars to come over to live. We've seen other guys get you know between a hundred and a hundred and fifty million dollars. I, I understand a lot of people are going to say that's worked and the sports washing has worked. As we sit and go along with all of this and see the way that we talk about it. I understand sports washing is to maybe get us to talk more about the sport that's going on in association with the organization that's trying to look a little cleaner versus talking about their human rights issues and violations and the crimes that they commit. But in this case, I think it's almost impossible for Live Golf to win on that front. Because I feel like, again, because of Phil Mickelson, every time they come up, No matter how much money they spend on these guys, it's always going to go back to, we know why part of the divide is there. We know where this money is coming from. There's no hiding it. Everyone talks about all the other places that the Saudi royal family has parked money in the English Premier League and businesses in the U.S., but we weren't given the game on that on the way in. 
And so that's done in a little bit of secrecy. There's no hiding all of this. There's no hiding the origin of this. And so people could say it's been successful because Liv is now able to challenge on this level. But I still look at it and say, none of this is going to change anyone watching Liv Golf, if that's even a thing anyone's done. Going to change their opinion of the Saudi royal family and what goes on over there. And because of the entry point with Phil Mickelson as the point of the spear and giving up the goods on that in his book saying they have an atrocious human right records. You see how they treat gay people and journalists over there. I feel like most everyone is going to always readily associate them with that. And as every new headline comes up, that's going to come up like it's coming up on here. So I don't know if I necessarily agree with any interpretation of what's happened so far as a win for Live Golf. They've managed to spend a lot of money and certainly create headlines, but I don't know if that's going to realistically make anyone think more positively about them. That's the thing, though, Mike. I don't know if they need anyone to think more positively about them because it seems like they're leaning on the fact that people are going to not care when the dollar amount rose up like the I, I'm hearing less and less of where this money is coming from uh when I'm when I'm reading these articles about the live tour versus the PGA tour it's it's more about these guys are picking the bad side or picking the new unknown and they need to stick with tradition because that's where the masters lives and now it seems like there's more people less and that care less and less like Tiger Woods trying to force onto the, this new generation of golf how he came up in golf seems a little bit antiquated. It's almost like to comparing college football before NIL. Like, I don't even know what the landscape looks like. So for me now, Live Golf, I think they might be leaning on the fact that at the end of the day, Americans usually, now I don't say usually, a lot, of, a lot of Americans in athletics and people who follow athletics get tired of caring. Oh, I understand they definitely get tired of caring, Brandon, but I guess it's not to the point where Like, let's put it this way. If we hadn't known about all of the human rights violations going into this, and that hadn't been the most highly publicized version of that story going in to our introduction to Live Golf back in the day, we probably would be paying a lot less attention to that now. And the goal, again, of sports washing is to use sports to obscure a nation's legal, moral, or ethical flaws. Like, obscure the bad things that they're doing. I guess my whole thought process is, in the other ventures they've done that in, They've been somewhat of a silent partner. There hasn't been this kind of buy-in that points the arrow back to them. Now they are the subject in so many of the stories when this comes up. And I just feel like that works counter to what you're trying to do in sports washing, which is to make people somehow look at you as a neutral figure rather than a bad, where I think everyone's going to continue to look at the uh, the Saudi government and what they've been a part of as an objective bad. Like, I don't think that version of the conversation's changed at all here, unless I'm completely misunderstanding what sports washing is and can be. Well, yeah, but I would say that if the the root of the tree continues to be bad, are we collectively, as a sports watching, as, as fans of golf, are we looking at everyone who decides to join the Lyft, Lyft tour as bad? Is Phil Mickelson, the John Wick's grandfather, like the, the version of him now, is he just empirically, like he's, he's bad. Like we think of him as bad and everyone involved with live tour. Is that how, is that as far we're taking it at this point in time? Everyone who's, who's signing up and taking money is bad. 
I don't know, Brandon. That's the tough part I struggle with because with these dollar amounts, you see it's life-changing for so many people. And there are going to be complications, I'm sure, that come from it that we aren't seeing. Like, when you talk about the crimes that these people have committed and having them as your boss, I'm sure eventually that's going to come with some uncomfortable conversations and some uncomfortable complications that you don't see when you're blinded by a nine-figure contract. So, I... I I don't think it's as simple as saying the people involved are all good or bad because as many people have pointed out, if you look hard enough at a lot of the sources of income for people in this country and otherwise, you can find some pretty bad and pretty ugly on the other side. But again, the difference is here, we were so acutely aware of the sins going in that I I don't think the end goal is ultimately going to meet. Now, it puts a crisis in the PGA's existence and has them having meetings like that, like that as... Phil Mickelson tried to make that the point, right? That this was about upending what the PGA Tour had done for so long. He, in his mind, which we know was probably not true. Phil Mickelson has a ton of gambling debt. Phil Mickelson had to get money fast. It all made sense in that light with him. But I I think that as the point is certainly like made a threat because now you've started poaching talent away from what was supposed to be the PGA's. But I don't think that was ever the goal for the Saudi royal family was to just come in and create a competitive counter league. It was to come in and to get people to forget about the things that they've done. And I still don't think at this point, because it's not a readily watched product, it's not something that people tune into like the NFL that, hey, have a bunch of conflict in watching based on things like we see with Deshaun Watson, but are so addicted to the product that they won't turn away. People aren't watching Live Golf. People aren't going over to do that. It's not a product you're seeking out, regardless of who it is. It's a name that gets brought up counter to another source in the PGA. Like, they only seem to exist relative to how it affects the PGA right now, and then how they're referenced and how they're framed always goes back to, we know that this is dirty money that's coming into the pockets of these guys. And so as long as that's going to be in the story connected with everything else, then I I struggle to see a way in which we consider this successful sports washing. But again, maybe I'm just trying to get a win in here while we watch this play out on a big stage over stuff that's a little further away from that. Yeah, I just think the reality is they're here for a lot longer than I anticipated. And and maybe maybe Tiger Woods and Ricky Fowler, and that's why they're meeting up and trying to plot and scheme. And yep, I, I think it's definitely gone further, faster than they all expected. And I think now, again, it all comes back to the great and powerful Stu Gotts, who pointed out that this is all going to be about the majors. And if you want to cap the growth on this thing, you're going to keep golfers from playing in the majors if they defect and go to live. So that, I thought, was the first big story of the day. The second big story of the day, you're going to have to wait for because first, coming up here on the other side of this break, we're going to talk to our friend Courtney Cronin about what to expect in the NFC North in this 2022 NFL season. Growing up playing sports, I learned really quickly that how you do the little things is how you're going to do everything. That's why coaches always harped on us about having our hand behind the line on sprints or picking up our locker because that was going to directly translate to critical moments on the field, making sure we're lined up right, taking the right steps so we can go out there and execute and win ball games. Small actions can have big benefits, just like how taking care of your gut can support your entire body's health. That's where our friends at Seed come into play. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is going to benefit your gut, skin, and heart health in just two little capsules a day. I just got my welcome kit and started taking Seed's DSO-1 myself 
myself, and I'm loving it. I love the convenience of being able to have it in the cabinet with my other supplements because you don't need to worry about refrigerating it, and I love the free travel vial that comes along with it. I'm constantly on the road, and so being able to take DSO-1 with me on the go is huge for my lifestyle here. I'll tell you what else I love is the fact that it's backed by science. DSO-1 was developed in collaboration with Seed Scientific Board and based on their foundational work in probiotics and the microbiome. And with new clinical trials and breakthrough research published in top scientific journals, Seed's probiotic research development and innovation programs make DSO-1 a product you can trust. And it's great with convenience, too. Probiotics and prebiotics work best when they're used consistently, just like any other routine health habit. And Seed's subscription service is going to easily help build DSO-1 into your routine, again, with no refrigeration required. So trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash gojo and use code 25gojo to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash gojo, code 25gojo. All right, the NFC North means we get to talk to one of my favorite people, Courtney Cronin, ESPN Bears reporter and ESPN radio co-host. Her and I got to spend a lot of time together over the last summer when I was still hosting at ESPN Radio. Uh, was formerly the ESPN Vikings reporter, so Courtney represents half the division that we get to talk about here today. But uh, being back home in the hometown Chicago has to be pretty fun for It's incredible. There's so many moments that I like almost have to pinch myself when I'm covering the Bears. Like I'm walking, you know, through the practice facility and I'm at Hallis Hall realizing that this is where I grew up. And, you know, this team um, has not won a, won a lot, even like dating back to when I was a kid in like living in the area. And um, not much has changed, but it's it's great. Like I, I couldn't ask for a better place to be back in Chicago like where I grew up and, and getting to do this job. It's, it's been really, really cool. Just to really quickly, because Justin Fields there, we always we know that the quarterback curse <laughs> that's there with the Chicago Bears. Does it feel like you're there at a special time where things are about to turn around for good? I guess they could turn around for good because the Bears have been in this spot before, I mean, for a very long time where they've been trying to find a franchise quarterback. I actually, I was just talking with Justin Fields about this one-on-one. You are assuming such a huge responsibility coming in here trying to be the guy because there have been so many others before you who were trying to be the guy and it never panned out. And, you know, you think year two, of a brand new quarterback who was a first round draft pick they they hedged you know their their draft future for this year obviously it was the last regime but they they put a lot of stock into making sure they could get that draft pick and i think that's huge and so when you're covering that there is the breath of fresh air feeling that you get in on the ground level with somebody who is you know two years into his rookie contract and is somebody who was such a tremendous college player uh I, I think there is a lot of like belief that he can be the guy but when you cover somebody like that you trying to figure how can they actually make the jump from year one to two when the circumstances are what they are in chicago with what's around him so it's it's definitely different because I covered Kirk Cousins in Minnesota and obviously he was a you know a big free agent acquisition for the Vikings when they got him in 18 and it's different when you have somebody who at that point was on the cusp of his you know of year 30 when when you get on the other side of 30 and are at a completely different stage of your career than somebody just starting out. 
And, and what's it been like for Justin on the leadership front too? Because this team's undergone okay. some pretty big identity shifts, right? And there's no more Allen Robinson in the building. There's no more Khalil Mack in the building on the other side. We'll get to the Roquan Smith hold in that's going on on the defensive side of the ball. And you've got the new regime coming in. So has this started to become Justin's team already where he's been able to get in front of the room? Yeah, I think that that's a great point because last year he was in such a weird situation. There's this pseudo quarterback competition that like I don't know if they just did that because they felt he needed a little bit of time at first but the Andy Dalton Nick Foles thing that's not a situation you want to bring anybody into especially the guy that you expect to take over at least in San Francisco they had the right succession plan in place where they knew last year that Trey wasn't ready and it was Jimmy's team last year in Chicago it's like who the hell's team is it um you know you have Andy Dalton you have Nick Foles who's kind of reluctantly there because he got traded there you know to, you know in the COVID year and it just was not a great situation for Fields because you cannot come in as the rookie when you've got these two veteran guys before you one who had won a Super Bowl and just start exerting your style of leadership so it feels this year that Fields came into a situation that he had a completely clean slate like okay I can lead the way that I want to from the very jump and I don't have to be worried about the perception in the locker room and it's a younger team too like when he and I sat down and talked about that, the difference from then to now, they had so many veterans on that team. Like There were guys at completely different parts of their career and their lives, whereas this is probably the youngest it, like team in the NFL when you, when you average it out because he's 23 years old. Their young stars are Cole Komet, who's early 20s. You guys know him from, from Notre Dame. Um, Darnell Mooney's a baby still, like very much and he's older than fields but he's still so young like you got to think about the guys that are the building blocks of this team they're all under 25 years old so it's a different group for fields to surround himself with and be like, this is my team versus i'm 22 last year and i've got khalil mack Akeem hicks um all of these guys who are almost 10 years older than me so I mean, you Rokon mm -hmm. Smiths, someone else who's young. That's the uh, building block for that defense. Uh, go ahead, Mike. Oh no, I, you were you were going right where I was, which is part of this situation. Also has to do with the young talent on the other side, and with what is happening with Roquan Smith right now. The hold in Roquan Smith very publicly demands a trade from the Chicago Bears. Hints that the organization is not valuing him, that their last offer was essentially a non-starter. So, Courtney, you wrote a great piece on ESPN.com kind of breaking down the logistics of where we're at with the Bears right now. So, as this currently sits in the situation here, why do you think, if there had to be one reason at the top of this, why are we in the position we're in now with a homegrown draft pick for a franchise who's been highly productive sitting out camp because the organization he believes doesn't want to pay him what he's worth. Well, it's there are a number of different things. First, I think you start with the the linebacker off ball linebacker market. We have not seen these deals pan out, and Fred Warner and Shaquille Leonard reset the market last year. But there's only a handful of guys who make over 15 million. So if Roquan Smith was going into this saying, I want to be the first $100 million inside linebacker, that's an uphill battle to climb because, frankly, 
we have not seen these deals age well. Think about Anthony Barr's contract that he signed that I think restructured not once, if not twice. Um, if I remember correctly, in Minnesota, and, and he's obviously on a different team now, C.J. Mosley's deal didn't work out very well. Um, Bobby Wagner in his $18 million a year contract got released from Seattle this season, last like, this offseason, and he was a staple there for his whole career. Like, So I think the market itself probably put him in a really tough spot because you're just not going to get paid at that position given the importance of edge rushers in the NFL and, and, and cornerbacks. Like, those are the two most lucrative spots to play on defense. And there was that, and then I think on top of that, if the Bears knew they weren't going to pay him top of market, they probably knew this a long time ago. You don't just decide in, in August, like, oh, we're not going to get to that number. Like, you, when you're doing your cap planning, when you're – figuring out what your salary what what your what your salary cap's going to look like what your finances are going to look like for this year and factoring in beyond when you're cap planning 2 to 3 years out you you're thinking about that number that your best player on the team is going to get so i think it's a matter of they waited too long to to do what they were probably going to do in the first place which because they haven't given him that deal is showing us that they don't want to pay that massive price tag that he might be wanting. And I know in his statement, he said that he felt disrespected by the team. He didn't think that they were negotiating in good faith and that the deal he would have signed would have hurt the linebacker market as a whole. Um, I think that you just have to look at kind of where he stacks up. Darius Leonard, excuse me, Shaquille Leonard, I think is a better player than Roquan Smith. Just, you know, the guy was a, was an, you know, an all pro right away as a rookie, you know, multiple time pro bowler, like Roquan Smith, second team, all pro. And he does have stats to support being maybe like a top three linebacker, but he's, but not the best in the NFL. And I think the bears are looking at that right now on top of the fact that you have a brand new front office like ryan poles came in inherited can i swear on this thing because we're DraftKings. absolutely he inherited a shit yes like top to bottom think about all the things he had to undo before you can even get to ground zero like i think people got to give the guy more credit than he deserves or more credit than he's than he's already getting right now because everything that happened the last few years transpired into just like this web of crap that he had to like start to like untangle before he could even start make even start like in hit like uh, installing what he wanted to do as far as moving this forward in the right this direct this franchise forward in the right direction and on top of that you have a brand new person negotiating contracts contracts and the salary cap and all that stuff and you know polls is this is his first go around figuring out how do I build a roster like what is his interaction with players and agents or players without agents during these things and I just think it's it's a lot of there's too much green going on like people are too inexperienced to expect that this thing was gonna go smoothly this offseason especially when it comes to contract negotiations but, but it all set itself up to kind of get it, get where we're at right now, you know, middle of August and, and not knowing the end in sight for any of this. Well, and you mentioned the agent portion of this. Roquan Smith, a player that is not represented by an agent, he's negotiating for himself here. How much <laughs> has that sort of complicated the way things have gone? Because we've now seen this with Lamar Jackson very publicly and with Roquan Smith now in Chicago. Yeah, it's, it's tough because... The, the NFL right now, that statement that they put out on Monday, warning to all 31 other teams, like, don't do business with this person, uh, and they name him by name, St. Omni, 
who, you know, if you if in NFL circles, he's well known as, as a financial advisor for a lot of like guys who get paid at top of market. Laramie Tunzel um, has been linked to him. And I don't know, I'm not going to go ahead and say you like negotiated a deal for him because he can't. If they only negotiate with NFL teams, only negotiate deals with NFLPA certified agents, but that doesn't mean that these guys, DeAndre Hopkins, Bobby Wagner, um, JC Jackson, these guys who do their own deals, they have somebody in their ear telling them the market, whether it's the NFLPA, um, whether it's, you know, in, in their salary cap and administration team, or whether it's these financial advisors who are not certified agents getting you know, helping guys kind of lay their case out. And so it made the deal so much more complicated when we when the NFL Management Council puts out that statement warning teams, like, don't do business with this person representing Roquan Smith because he's not a certified agent. And it may have actually killed his trade value. Like, when you think about this, for the Bears, you know, no team is going to negotiate with a player individually if he represents himself that's under contract because you, you run the risk of tampering. And if the Bears didn't grant him a trade request, like the ability to go seek a trade, which they have not, I reported that, um, it just makes things so much trickier. These agents can do a lot of things under the table. They can figure out what the market is. And he doesn't have any of that. And he doesn't know any of that because, you know, he's not an NFLPA certified agent. So this whole thing is just, it's just crazy because when you when we think about Lamar, like he's the one who's going to be potentially resetting the quarterback market, uh, and if he goes in there and asking for anything less than what Deshaun Watson just got uh, from Cleveland, I think that that's the wrong move. But how do these guys finesse and navigate this stuff when they don't have traditional representation? This is a new wave in the NFL uh, that we're seeing with guys getting their, these sorts of deals. I mean, we saw it with Charles Cross, the rookie in Seattle this year, and. Um, I don't know how this ends for Roquan Smith. Like that's that's the tough part because again we're halfway through the month and it feels like his trade momentum just died when the NFL Management Council sent that memo out and the Bears at this point you know have not been able to move him and I don't know how serious they are in wanting to move him at this point because they've you know they feel like he's at a certain number and he feels like he's a, a number that's higher than that clearly. This is all a lot for a first-year head coach and Matt Eberflus to deal with here. As you look at the whole totality of this picture, what does the first camp look like for Matt Eberflus having to deal with this, having to deal with being such a young team here? How has he come in and sort of laid the groundwork for whatever this Bears season is going to be? There have been missteps along the way, I think, from from the very start of this offseason season and this coaching staff, the front office, Eberflus and, and what he's trying to build here, they've had to work through that. And training camp has looked like, you know, a lot of trial and error because they're fast they're 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 a very fast physical team, at least what we've seen. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. I mean is his first go around with this and I think back to when they got one of their OTAs taken away because they were deemed by the NFLPA in, in May I believe it was that they had too physical of a practice well there's certain things you call like rookie mistakes for even coaches when he's trying to establish something and these hits principles um which that's what he that's his acronym that he brought over from Indianapolis and it's hustle intensity toughness maybe I don't know spell out hits come up with some words um I love those it's, things. You know, it's very college, but, I mean, that's that he, he's had yeah. the college game experience. It makes sense. And, you know, they're, it's like players are trying to impress this coaching staff because it's a first-year coaching staff 
A lot of guys who don't have ties to this group, and these coaches are also trying to coach what Matt Eberflus wants uh, out of his, out of his coaches and what he expects to get out of his players. So I think a lot of that kind of snowballs into we're all learning this at the very same time, and it's not going to be a pretty product uh, as we go along. So of course, there's certain things that he can't prevent in his first year as a head coach, namely those those injuries at the wide receivers have I mean it's a pretty thin group right now um you know and on top of that like just some of the things that they did along the way that just didn't pan out you go back to free agency they try to sign Larry Ogunjobi and he fails a physical um that was supposed to be their big splash at the three technique position which is so important in a 4-3 when you're trying to get after the quarterback and it's like all right that didn't work out back to the drawing board didn't get a lot of they didn't get a lot of free agent help either back to the drawing board offensive line is is a work in progress i mean it feels like the tevin jenkins storyline of is he does he want to be here does he not want to be here got completely buried by the roquan smith situation and now all of a sudden he might be competing to start at right guard like a lot has changed in a matter of like 10 days here and for matt eberflus i think that that looks like trial and error but still trying to build your culture within that and, and stick to those core principles which might sound cliche um but that's what they're hanging on to because this is going to be a tough season. I think a lot of people, even some players, have talked about like kind of bracing for that and, and setting realistic expectations and being able to track progress when success isn't there in, the ter- in terms of more wins than losses, if that makes sense. I mean, it makes perfect sense for the mm-hmm. division that we're covering. With the NFC North, it seems like everyone has this issue outside of the the Green Bay Packers. It seems like there's a lot of like, just green decisions that are made with the – especially the Bears, obviously, with the Lions, like uh, the, the Vikings. It seems like that – you can talk about that, but it just seems like this long tunnel of decisions that don't work out, and it's like, okay, we just got to change the top. And it, there's this continuous cycle of, all right, that didn't work this last five years. Let's try again these next five years. Like, how does, how do you get out of the green when making decisions as a franchise to start getting some traction? Yeah, and I think for the Bears, I mean, every new regime has inherited the last regime's demons. And like I was mentioning with polls, you have to undo all of that before you can start building what you want and sometimes by the time you get to like level the you know ground zero it's too late and there there's certain instances where it like feels like along the way this off season can you know we might look back at certain things and say well that was a make or break point for for the bears and that's why this did work out or this is why it didn't work out and it's different in minnesota because you know they, they went about it a completely different way where you have a veteran quarterback that they held on to and they chose to hold on to when, yes, the financial penalty to move on from Kirk Cousins this past offseason would have been astronomical. He had a $45 million cap hit. He had more leverage on his side to where he didn't have to restructure. And if you can't move the guy, you're kind of stuck in the spot unless you truly wanted to rip it down to the studs. Like that's the difference between Minnesota, where I just came from, and Chicago. Chicago ripped it down to the studs, and they might not be done yet ripping it down to the studs, especially if they end up moving on from Roquan Smith. Minnesota's a retooling because they've got core veteran pieces, some of which are, are you know, top of the NFL. I mean, Justin Jefferson is an absolute star, and I cannot wait to see 
like what he looks like in year three after watching him year one and two. Dalvin Cook is one of the best running backs in the NFL. Um, there's all these pieces here, and, and I really, really like what they've done on defense and switching to a 3-4 and going to get Zedaria Smith and pairing him with Daniil Hunter. But they figure, they figure this competitive rebuild, if, I don't know what you guys think of that term, it, it's certainly uh, buzzworthy that Quasito Fomensa, their general manager, threw out there as what they were trying to do, where you're starting over, but you're still keeping several important pieces of this team and building around that. Like, it's one way to do it. Might it work out? I think that there, there's some reasonable skepticism within within why people think the Vikings will not be much more than what they were last year. But, you know, you'd like to think, too, that the change in leadership from, from all facets with that team, from the general manager to the head coach, that they – that thing ran its course. That that thing should have probably been, um, I think, honestly, had things panned out differently following the 2019 season, we would have seen some changes far sooner than we did this offseason, and maybe they wouldn't be in the spot. Oddly enough, as we were getting ready to do this interview, I did just see that former Vikings head coach Mike Zimmer was going to work for uh, Deion Sanders at Jackson State and going to be what? a part of the staff there. So. You talk about a different different voice in a different place. Mike Zimmer will certainly be that. But you're right, Courtney, in the fact that it's a lot better roster that Kevin O'Connell inherits. And you know, he's part of the sexy coaching tree right now in the NFL, that Shanahan-McVay group and what they bring over. I, I mean, would you say it's fair to say pairs pretty well with the personnel the Vikings have, especially on offense, even though Kirk Cousins, you know, is a guy who's got familiarity with that tree going back to his days in Washington, even if he might not be caviar at that position. The thing that always irks me is that there's this idea that the next guy is going to get the most out of Kirk Cousins. And <laughs> Kevin O'Connell did work with Cousins in Washington for one season as his quarterback's coach. You know, we've... You are what you are at this point, 33, 34 years old. You've been a starter in this league since 2015. You've been in this league since 12. Like, I don't know what more you can get out of the guy and the expectations that it's going to be that much bigger of a jump. Like, certainly culture helps, you know, in being in a place where you're empowered and not feeling like you're a detriment to the defense. Let's just call it what it was. <laughs> and, um, you know, Last year, it was too much. It was too little, too late. Like when when Mike Zimmer's trying to get Kirk Cousins to be more aggressive and to let it rip. Like no, like you've already like, you know, kicked the puppy. Like he's afraid to throw certain balls. And I mean, that's always been who he is. Like the checkdown is the most comfortable option a lot of times because he's not a risk taker in a lot of facets. Because most times, when when you do have a risk averse quarterback, when he does take a risk, it's not going to turn out well uh it's gonna lead to interceptions it's gonna lead to turnovers and um i just don't know that that narrative is is a fair one and an, and an accurate one around kirk that he can be something that he's not and that a new coach is going to come in and just change him like the one thing that i think luke Getzey said and he's obviously the bears offensive coordinator but this scheme is you see variations of it everywhere the Kubiak Shanahan system which you know Kirk has played in and and I'm very curious to see what you know the McVeigh influence too what what O'Connell brings to Minnesota but Getzey said when we were talking about this like because we all we all expect that this offense is somehow going to make everybody that plays in it especially at the quarterback position an absolute superstar but the, the scheme's not meant to make anybody better than what they are it's a quarterback friendly scheme 
So it's meant to take the burden off of the quarterback and help him in that way, where you do lean more heavily on the run game. You do have a heavy dose of play actions, bootlegs, changing, you know, rolling quarterbacks away from pressure. That's the stuff that's going to help Kirk Cousins, not thinking that there's some magic that's going to be injected into him. Like, they're finally going to get it right with his seventh offensive coordinator, whatever the hell it is, since he's entered the league. Like, that's just not realistic. But there are, I think there's, the optimism there is that this this defense will still be very good, and I think they've, they've added some pieces this offseason. I really like the first-round safety that they got. Um, but on top of that, like, they have great skill players on offense, and, and that's, you know, for as long as I covered them, that's always kind of been their bread and butter. Like those guys, you know, are solid. It's just trying to figure out how do you make the most out of them when the quarterback play, when you don't have a scheme transcendent quarterback. No, I, I think for everyone having this scheme conversation around the quarterback, the 49ers in the past few years have really been the most instructive form of this, mm-hmm. which is nothing that happened there turned Jimmy Garoppolo magically into anything else. It just put much more of the focus on all of the other weapons around him that we've seen shine and what we've seen the rest of those pieces become. It might help, especially with you know the Vikings offensive line. They drafted a lot of lighter guys, especially in the middle. You know When you think of Garrett Bradbury and Brian O'Neill, guys that might be able to help you in a scheme that wants those guys to get out and run. But I'm with you, and the interesting part about all of this to me, Courtney, is all of it leads me to kind of an interesting place. And part of this is because I have drunk so much Hard Knocks (laughs) Kool-Aid the first Tuesday night heading into, you know, as this podcast will air on Wednesday, what will have gone on the second Tuesday night. But I look around at the situation the Bears are in. I look around at this transition for the Minnesota Vikings. And then I look at the way the Lions have started to construct this roster over the last couple of years, and all of a sudden I look up and go, are the Lions going to start to be a little more competitive? Like, in a world where this seems like a one-team division, is it fair to say that we might be at a point in year two in the Dan Campbell and company takeover where the Lions can start to challenge the Bears and the Vikings in a pretty meaningful way this season? It's a good question because we all want to buy into like the Lions this year because they're a f- they're fun on the surface, at least. I mean, Dan Campbell's doing up-downs with a broken wrist. Uh, spoiler alert to anybody who, you know, didn't hear the story about how he tripped over the, the dog's crate or whatever it was at the house. Um, and, you know, he didn't want to, like, wuss out on doing the up-downs and, be, like, have the excuse of, like, well, my wrist is all jacked up. Well, it actually was. Um, that sort of... Like, isn't there's something to be said about, like, that sort of shtick that comes from a coach... Sometimes we find this stuff corny, like hits principles. That's not for everybody. Some people think that's a little gimmicky. I think everybody's buying into Dan Campbell and the grit and the whole thing because this this Detroit team had been in such a weird place under Matt Patricia. And, you know, you think back to, like, well, why did they fire Jim Caldwell? Like, you know, maybe that was a dumb decision considering he was the winningest coach they had in, in a long time. Um, and, and just – I feel like Dan Campbell is Detroit. Like, he played there, obviously, and he, he has that Parcelsian attitude where it's, like, no bullshit, and that's a, you know, it's a blue-collar town. I feel like he fits the mold of the city really well. And that's great and everything. You're in year two, and people are going to start to expect, can you, can you pay off on this, or is this just another coach that at face value looks really good and looks like, like he can lead this group? Um I think that the Lions, I don't want to go as far as to say, like, wow, they're really going to make some noise this year, but 
they're going to be better than a four or five win team. I think success for a group like that, that still has Jared Goff as their quarterback. Let's not forget, like, it's not like they've just inherited all of this talent. They drafted fairly well this year, but really their only additions, DJ Chark, like, especially on that offensive side of the ball, when you think of free agency, um, like one new starter. And I, I just look at that and I say, well, how high can the ceiling actually get with Detroit? Like to me, I still have some pause there, but this division makes it easy to project who might be the third or the second team because of who we expect the fourth team to be, which is a team in an ultimate rebuild right now, which is the Chicago Bears. So I guess it's like we can set Detroit's bar based on the where we set the bar for other teams in the NFC North and figuring that if it's more success than what they had last year, and certainly you can look down the stretch of those games in December when they beat the Vikings on that final play from Amon Ross St. Brown because Cam Dantzler is playing the wrong coverage and it gets stuck in the end zone looking around like he had no clue what he was doing. And then when they beat Arizona, who, like, I don't know what that game was, but they won. Um, those are... It was after Call of Duty came out, so we kind of knew what the deal was by then, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was definitely not doing his homework at that point. But um, it's there, there's good there's good things to build on, and I think that Aiden Hutchinson, I'm really excited to see like what what he becomes at the NFL level. Just watching so much Big Ten football last year and seeing how good he was at Michigan, and it's exciting. Like, but I think that there's. There's reasonable excitement with the Detroit Lions team. I'm not expecting them to all of a sudden be a sleeper in the NFC as a potential playoff team. Well, I think it's the best thing for a team that has a fan base that doesn't expect anything. Like, I, I grew up in Detroit. I spent a lot of time looking at them in the 2000s, draft wide receiver after wide receiver after wide receiver. And one thing that we never had is I'm, – I'm not saying we, excuse me. Uh, one thing my dad and their teams ever had was uh, – identity mm -hmm. especially after they felt like they're still really hurt by Barry Sanders retiring like so Dan Campbell introducing this grit mentality and obviously running the ball I think for a long time the the Lions didn't even have a hundred yard like couldn't average a hundred yards rushing again yeah. for a very very long time that's changed the offensive line hasn't played together but they're there I think there's an a realistic there's an ability to just be decent for a few years and Dan Campbell get put get uh, you know hoisted into the rafters and get carried off the field like Rudy because the franchise doesn't have any wins yeah and it's like again the bar is so low like I remember being in Detroit last year and even just like the game day operation of like is this someone's iPod playing right now like they didn't even like go all in with like a DJ it was just like <laughs> early 2000s hits that were playing. And I just remember sitting there being like, this feels like a poverty franchise. That is a poverty franchise type move. And obviously they end up winning that game that I'm there covering the Vikings in, in early December. And the amount of resources that they have yet to put in and that they have already put in, it feels like something's changing here. There's tangible, like you didn't feel this this change at all under Matt Patricia. You felt like somebody who was coming in there trying to shove the Patriot way down players' throats that just weren't having it. And you, you saw it, how many players ended up defecting from that team. I mean, Golden Tate's had some fun, uh, you know, quotes about his time in Detroit. And it's all true because that was a terrible situation. And I don't know. Dan Campbell's been able to, like, get people who aren't 
Lions fans that aren't believers and don't want to, like, you know, take the mentality of we'll get him next year. Like, he's actually gotten people to buy into, hey, there might actually be a chance that we could get them next year type thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's it, – there's tangible mm-hmm. optimism because the coach – I think it all starts there, and even though in, in realizing what their draft positioning is too, I mean those first round picks that they got from the golf trade, sending Matthew Stafford somewhere else, that stuff's going to pay off. And I think what their front office can do, and Brad Holmes certainly has the draft capital now to strike. Like if they aren't a great team, and wherever they're drafting. Next year's a great draft for a quarterback class because we probably have seen, again, like you, you see the ceilings in quarterbacks. We've seen the ceiling in Jared Goff. We saw it with the Rams. And I, I just think that their future, especially once they're able to get a, you know, sustain to sustain some, some success at the quarterback position, because they had it with Matthew Stafford, but they, I don't know if you want to say misuse, like, you know, didn't properly use it or just didn't put him in a situation to succeed during his decade there. Now that they have a fresh perspective and a fresh set of philosophies that they can build around that position, 2023, when they're drafting, might be the right year to do that. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code GOJO. That's code GOJO for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. So this team becomes really interesting to me because you're right. The Dan Campbell difference between him and Matt Patricia is Dan Campbell knows who he is and Matt Mm -hmm. Patricia was trying to be somebody else. And you've been around a ton of players and no, that's something that everyone can pick up on. Having a staff full of guys that were, you know, perennial NFL pros and guys that played a decade in the year at almost every position certainly helps with all that stuff. But everything we just described there is right. They have a Jared Goff ceiling here. And that might help them lose a few more games than they should and get to better draft position. Or it might just keep them right level with whatever the floor is that's set mostly along the lines of scrimmage for this team. But you mentioned the possibility. The question I had was, obviously the draft can be a possibility with the capital they have. I'm just wondering if Detroit is a franchise because it is Detroit. Because you mentioned some of the limitations in what they've put in resource-wise so far. Is there any shot they could turn themselves into a place that might be a destination for a disgruntled veteran quarterback? Like, I look at Derek Carr in Las Vegas and say there's a big out in his contract after this season. It's never seemed like a marriage that's been totally on solid ground there. And he's a guy that is, you know, on his best day, maybe the 12th or 11th best quarterback. He's a very good quarterback in this league. And if all of a sudden he became available and you put him behind a Detroit offensive line that's young and getting better, that's starting to amass some weapons around there with DeAndre Swift and Amon Ross St. Brown that you mentioned, 
could that be an opportunity for that team? Or is the Detroit factor make it difficult to try and lure potentially a free agent or, you know, a, a trade partner like that? It, it, it'd be interesting because, you know, like we talked about, I mean, they did a, I think they did a really good job drafting this year. It's never really been like a, a great destination for free agents because they don't win and probably because in a way it's Detroit. That's nothing against the city. It's just like, it's not a football. T- I mean, it is, and it's not, like, that's not a place where you go to revive your career. And I remember when the Jared Goff trade happened that night, it was just kind of like, well, they're sending him to Siberia, like a football version of Siberia. And could he be the person who melts that ice and, you know, turns it into a place where free agents want to go? Maybe, but like they've, they slowly have built this thing. Like, like Brandon was mentioning with the offensive line, think about all the guys that they have there that you finally expect. Okay, it's like this year we we spent uh, you know a first-round pick on Frank Ragnow. Okay, center position will be good for the next couple of years. Then it's, you know, Panay Sewell. Like, your right tackle position is set. You know, Taylor Decker's still there. Like, you have a lot of talented players that they, they've spent, like, uh, they've spent good draft capital on the offensive line. And even, even on defense, being able to, you know, Trading for Michael Brockers from L.A., um, you know they signed Charles Harris this off season too. I mean, there's there's pieces that are coming together that I think we've seen more this happen this year than than previous years. And maybe I mean they've got 26 ish million right now in available cap space for next year, and, and certainly that can change and go up um, depending upon what you do with Goff's contract and, and how you handle potentially moving on from him. But the Derek Carr one is a good one because. That's not a three-year contract in, in in reality. Like you can get out of that for five and a half something million dollars next year, and just a little bit of debt. Like that's the dead money. Um, if if Josh McDaniels is not sold on him, then then that's what they do, and they end up bringing in whoever they want to be throwing the ball to arguably one of the most talented uh, you know core of pass catchers in the AFC West. Um, I think that that's a great one because Carr is is in a lot of ways like a Matthew Stafford type where he's a very good quarterback, and if he flirts with 5,000 yards this season, maybe he's even in the MVP mix, but they, he's never won a playoff game. So like that's that's always kind of been the knock, and maybe a place like Detroit, maybe that's what they need within the confines of what Dan Campbell is building there to help them get to that next level, which what is the next level for Detroit? Is it just like, is it a 10 win season? Maybe like once or twice in the matter of a couple years? Like you can't say next level, oh, like expecting this team to be a perennial playoff contender. It hasn't shown that it can be that ever, literally in its history of its existence. So getting to like the first step of like making the playoffs consistently and like winning nine or 10 games a year, I think that's got to be the bar that they set for themselves like a realistic expectation of what this thing can project out to be no i i would say even like eight wins this year like you mentioned if they're like an eight or nine win team depending on you know the 17 game schedule factor and all this that's a massive success if you go out there and erase the sting of a couple of those massively close losses that's an absolute win in the world the detroit it's just to me i keep looking out at a league that we say, all right, it's always a copycat league. You've seen the last couple of Super Bowl champions start to do the thing where you pluck a veteran into a roster that's been moving in the right direction, and it just starts to get mm-hmm. the wheel turning a little bit. But you did mention Devontae Adams, so that feels like a good time to talk about the Green Bay Packers now, who, as we've kind of hinted at in the lead-up to this, it seems like the Packers and then, you know, it's the Packers and the Pips in this division right now. 
But with what they lost in Devontae Adams and some of the changes made on offense, we saw a bunch of reports coming out of Packers camp about Aaron Rodgers being a little frustrated with some of the young receivers on that team. Is there any thought that this machine slows down a little bit in Green Bay, who's expected to be one of the three real teams in the NFC that can actually hoist this thing? Yeah. It only took until August 16th for Aaron Rodgers to get a little irked with his young pass catchers. I know that today he was, you know, throwing a lot of them under the bus. I think uh, it was Romeo Dobbs who, like, was just dropping balls left and right in practice, or at least that's what Aaron Rodgers would make you, like, believe based on what you read because he said, you know, you're saying it's not Alan Lazard because that's his guy, and it's not Randall Cobb because that's also his guy, and Sammy Watkins. Those are all veteran receivers, and Rodgers knows that he can't even if he was frustrated with them, he can't throw them under the bus because those are going to be that's, – that's, that's who's carrying the weight in the passing game. But these young rookies and these young players, he can absolutely, like, you know, light a fire under them by saying whatever he wants about this because he was saying he had a great day at practice on August 16th. Yeah. It's their fault that they didn't catch the damn ball, which I just – Anytime he speaks, and I know he put the Nick Cage bust in his locker today, like everything is just it's just performative theater around Aaron Rodgers, and, I, and I'm here for it. But um, as far as his offense goes, the last couple of years they've been trending away towards Aaron, Aaron Rodgers having to be the MVP magic, scramble for eight seconds inside the, the low red zone and, and make a play, Aaron Rodgers, to get this team you know, to, to this team to reach its ceiling because we've seen it. We've seen this team reach its ceiling when he's playing at an MVP level. It's a 13 and three team that ends up bowing out either in the championship game and can't make the next step or what we saw last year in the divisional playoffs. So I think when Matt LaFleur took over, it's been a slow burn of changing the offense and not doing it so drastically that it makes Rogers like freak out all at once. Like they've done, they've done it the right way where they've started to put, more run support around him. And I think not having Adams there is not a complete death wish for the Packers. Like, their window to contend is still open as of right now. I mean, what you're going to see this year is them, you know, having more two-back sets and adding some balance to that passing attack might not, like, it's not going to change the loss of not having Devontae Adams there. He's the best receiver in football. But balance in the offense might change the outlook for this team and I think that that's a big thing for a group that you know it's kind of like this this misfit group of misfit toys when you know Alan Lazard's a wide receiver one in the eyes of Aaron Rodgers I don't know what he's seeing and I don't think a lot of people are but I mean he has really no other choice and you know Randall Cobb is is it's always been his guy and I think will continue to be that so he's gonna like force that thing through and say he's the best slot receiver in the NFL like I don't I don't know about this version of him but there's some young players that I like the way they drafted. I like the Christian Watkins pick. I like Romeo Dobbs. I, I think that there's some good skill players that they have, but at this point of Rogers' career and, and not having Devontae Adams, they're not as dominant of a team to have to game plan for from a defensive perspective. So how teams will change now, I mean, they still have to prepare that Aaron Rodgers can pull this Houdini act and, and do whatever he wants back there, but who he's throwing the ball to matters and how those guys come through when Devontae Adams has been such a, you know, force for this team. I, I think that there will be some changes. And, I, and that's the thing. Like, I don't think this is such a runaway, like, expectation for me. I don't think that the Packers are going to just run away with the division. I think it, the gap between them and Minnesota 
and I, I've kind of changed my opinion on this, I think the gap is closed a little bit. Like, it used to be, to me, it was Green Bay way up here, and then Minnesota, like, you know, really? probably, like, two notches below. I think that the way that Green Bay, like, the way things have gone on in Green Bay this offseason, they're going to have a top 10 defense. Like, that's, that's you know, where they can really, like, hang their hat. Um, I don't think it's as wide of a gap in the NFC North between the top two teams. We know who the top two teams are, but I just don't think it's like the Packers are head and shoulders so much better than the Minnesota Vikings. I think we talk a lot about the skill players well to that. And you're right, the Packers, I mean, top 10, potentially top five defense on the other side here. I mean, what they've managed to do at linebacker and what that position's turned into, Devondre Campbell and that, you know, off-the-street explosion for them last year, the way they've drafted up front. Preston Smith looked better again. They've got Devontae Wyatt and Quay Walker coming in as the draft picks, and the secondary's lights out on that side, but the offensive line in front of Aaron Rodgers, too. Elton Jenkins coming off an ACL injury, one of the most versatile offensive linemen in the NFL. David Bakhtiari, still not a lock necessarily for week one, dealing with the holdover from his lower body injury from last year, so... All of that, too, I I think certainly adds up in front of Aaron Rodgers, who is certainly mobile. But like you said, Courtney, it's been a while since we've seen him had to exist without one of the best offensive lines in the league in front of him and certainly one of the best left tackles in football, if not the best, protecting him for the majority of that time. Yeah, I mean, they do a great job drafting and developing offensive linemen. They always have, and this is kind of their first year that you might wonder, okay, how is that going to look if if Dave Bakhtiari when it, do we know when he's coming off the pup? Like, do we expect that he's going to get removed? Like, will he start the season on pup? Like, I mean, we've been running through this same sort of injury stuff with Bakhtiari now for, like, almost, you know, it was all last season, and I can't remember, like, before then when he got hurt. Like, this is this is kind of a problem. Um, and they had to move so many pieces last year due to injury. And I think that that was, I mean, certainly they, they win the division and um, – they go to the division. They go to the divisional playoffs. Like they were an excellent team in spite of those injuries and in spite of having to have so many moving parts on the offensive line in season. But you know, what does that look like when Aaron Rodgers can't be completely invincible from all of that? Like to me, this group. Like if Rodgers can stay healthy, and you know, I know he was dealing with the foot thing last year, and um, you know, who knows what it could potentially be this year. Like if if he can stay healthy, the the floor just starting where the floor is for this team I think is very high but like what is that ceiling if they didn't get like immaculately better on offense this offseason particularly if they're still dealing with you know some moving parts up front like that to me is the underrated storyline in Green Bay when all we want to talk about is Devontae Adams and he's out of there and what does this group look like you know how does that offensive line end up factoring in? That to me is like the bigger unknown with this group. That you know, even throughout training I mean, you camp, talk about I don't think we've gotten healthy. those answers yet. Hopefully, uh, Aaron Rodgers stays immunized against uh, Omarion. Um, but <laughs> obviously, uh, Aaron Rodgers, his whole narrative has been in spite of, right? Like it's he does all these things in spite of four-time MVP winner coming off of the back-to-back reigning. And he's won a Super Bowl, but a very, very long time ago. So here's my question: in a in a sport, in a in a in a uh, yeah, in the game where we measure success by trophies, winning games in the playoffs, this, we got a guy who's one game over 500 in the playoffs. Like, is it fair to say that one of the greatest players that we've ever seen throw a football could possibly be overrated? 
I think it's a fair question in bringing up his playoff record because 2010 was a long time ago. Like, I was underage in 2010, which is crazy to think about now. Um, And, like, now where Aaron Rodgers is at, they've had their chances. And and you've got to wonder, like, if 13-3 and is your ceiling and you can't get past – Seattle, if you can't get past, or, you know, that, that's a bad example. If you can't get past the San Francisco 49ers, if you can't get past, um, you know, it, what is a weaker NFC this year, whether it's the Rams, the Bucks, the 49ers, I'll throw them in that mix too. Um, you know, who else am I forgetting? I mean, there's like four teams that you can probably like throw a dart at and say like any one of those from the NFC could, could get into the Super Bowl. Like, if they can't do it this year, what is it going to take? Because the last couple of years, we've seen them come up short in the NFC Championship twice in the divisional playoffs last year. And I just don't know because some of that is on obviously like in-game decisions and in clock management and, you know, realizing how many people you have on the field and yeah. in special teams and all the stuff that, you know, goes into winning games. But Rodgers has been on every single one of those teams. And some of it is kind of unfortunate because, like, you expect, like, somebody who's, like, a, you know, first ballot Hall of Famer to have more than one Super Bowl win. And I do think that it's fair to, to bring all of that into question when we talk about his legacy because these teams under Matt LaFleur, yeah, he has all these great wins in his first three seasons as a head coach, but you, you won all this stuff and, and you still haven't won a Super Bowl. Like, because, I mean, it's one thing if you don't win – but you guys, they won, and they set the bar so high for themselves, and they, they I wouldn't say they've choked, but they haven't been able to, to close it out and, and, you know, finish the job. And I think that's really tough for a team that you expect every single year to be at the top of their division because they are in a division that, you know, Minnesota's kind of teetered the line of mediocrity from time to time. We know what the Bears and Lions are. They should run away with it. But once they get, like, paired up against other, like, uh, best teams in the NFC, they haven't delivered. And that's a problem when you think about Green Bay as a whole and you've got to dissect, okay, maybe this team isn't as good I think in certain areas. I think the solution to all their problems were. is just one big team bonding experience where everyone in Green Bay does ayahuasca. I feel like it's just got to be one gigantic puke and shit <laughs> session, a little bit of reckoning with their inner child, and then they come out on the other side better than they were. Like if Ego death. Yes, exactly. Ego death in Green Bay at the hands of Ayahuasca during training camp would be an interesting subplot to this entire season. But Courtney, I think you're I think you're right and I think viewing Green Bay is actually an interesting way. The closer we get to the season, the top of the NFC could be one of those good from far far from good things where you start to look around and go Every one of the teams in contention between Tampa, the Rams, and Green Bay all have a few more warts than we probably give them credit for heading into the start of the season. And whether it's Matthew Stafford's elbow, some of the offensive line injuries in front of Tom Brady, or the same could be said about the offensive line and some of the weapons in Green Bay, the gap might be a little closer for all than we mentioned here. You mentioned the Vikings are pretty close. When it all comes down to it, is this a division that puts two teams into the NFC playoffs? Could the Vikings and Green Bay both make it out of this, or is this a one-horse town? Realistically, I think it's a one-horse town because I think that the wild-card teams, you know, I've had the Vikings kind of in and out of my mix as maybe like the seven seed, but I think Philly's a wild-card team. I think that the 49ers are a wild-card team, and maybe the Saints. So the Vikings for me would teeter on the edge of like just on like just miss maybe like you know the eighth team in the NFC 
or just getting in at seven. Um, to your point, when we're talking about like the three teams in, in the NFC, I wonder, is it, it's like it's it's such a top-heavy league because the, on the other side, the AFC has like 10 teams that are all really good, and you might have a 10-win team that might not make the playoffs, which the balance of power, and I think that you can attribute that to the quarterbacks by and large, the young quarterbacks, quarterbacks who either just got off their rookie deals and got onto massive extensions within the last two years, that that's that balance of power has transitioned over to the AFC, which that's what's going to keep that conference so sustainable for the years to come and make those games incredible to watch. And when you're seeing these great quarterback matchups, you're just you just don't have that in the NFC because you have quarterbacks who are, you know, nearing the end of their career. What I'm not going to ever say that about Tom Brady because he might play until he's like 100. Mm-hmm. But you have quarterbacks who are on the other side of 30, whereas you don't have these young rookie, you know, young stars that are proven that are still on their rookie deals. You don't see that as often in in the NFC that you do in the AFC, which is why, like, it's like there's three teams and then there's everybody else, which is that's how I feel like we look at the NFC this year and it makes it interesting because you know, those, those final playoff spots, the wild card spots. And if, if the NFC East gets to, if, if the NFC North gets to, you know, do those teams really deserve to be there? Or is it just like, Hey, they had to fill the seating somehow. And even though these were bad teams, like that was just how the divisions and the, in the conference standing. Or the well, I'm excited to uh, see you continue to cover these things. I want to say it was a pleasure for me. We're not, I'm not, Mike does the leaving thing. I just want to say something to you real quick. As I got into the podcast game, I started having to read articles and follow up games and things like that. And I came across an article of yours when you were covering the Vikings. And I believe you started the article with a, it was either a ludicrous verse or a Nelly. It was a Kodak Black Kodak lyric. Black, thank you. Thank you. That's ah, I know exactly where you're going. That's what we're saying. And then I, I kept reading and you use Sands just randomly every night. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is one of my favorite writers of covering football. I went and followed you <laughs> on, on Twitter just because of that. And I, I'm, I'm glad you remember because I wanted to, I needed to know uh, why I first fell in love with your writing. And, and it was because I'm a big hip hop rap guy. So that's what it was. Thank you so much for your work. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. That's the only time I've ever been able to get away with it. That's why. That's what gave it away to me because I have tried like hell to sneak that stuff into my writing. And we are a family company here um, at ESPN. And I remember it was it was a story about Dalvin Cook and you know Pompano or Pompano Beach is where Kodak Black is from. Dalvin's from Miami. I remember this is like my first week on the beat. And, and I'm writing this big feature on on Cook and you know really why he fell in the draft um, and and the song Tunnel Vision like he's, I think Project Baby Two had just come out yes. and Painting Pictures which I thought was the album of the year in 2017 and got robbed. Thank you um, for saying it. Um, like I remember I was like well I got to bond with Dalvin I've got to find some common ground talk about I like Kodak Black you're from Miami, you must like Kodak Black too. And then we did, it turns out he actually does. So I hit on something there. And I remember we just like got into like the, um, you know, we we're just talking about like kind of where he's from. The song Tunnel Vision is what I was referencing in there because he's like, yeah, like this is kind of like, I've got tunnel vision this year. Um, and we were kind of playing off the lyrics. And that was the one time I was able to get Kodak lyrics into, into a story. My editor like will still from time to time remind me about that. Um, and yeah, I just remember like one somebody who used to work at ESPN was in our group, like editing my story being like, what is this? Like, what? Huh? And I was like, it's just, Love it. I got away with a lot more early on, you know, kind of just hey. ask for forgiveness. Um, you got to give the people what they do. want. 
Exactly. You want you want dynamic. Courtney Cronin is a chameleon. <laughs> Between that, you've seen her all over First Take, ESPN Radio, and everywhere else this year. It's been awesome to see. Courtney, we appreciate you giving us so much of your time. We know you're busy as hell during the preseason. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you guys for having me. Sound the trumpets. It's horse racing time. So saddle up for the action with DK Horse, an official DraftKings affiliate. Right now, new customers who download the DK Horse app can get a 100% deposit bonus up to $250. Just deposit $25 or more and complete the playthrough requirement. Wager on your favorite horses, then watch the races live right in the app. Download the DK Horse app now. New customers get a 100% deposit bonus up to $250 when they opt in with code GOLIT. Only on the DK Horse app. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER, 18+, plus, 21+, plus in certain states, to open or access an account and resident of a state where DK Horse is available. Eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. One per new customer. Match calculated on first deposit up to a maximum of $250. Deposit requires two-time playthrough of settled wager within 168 hours. Bonus released in $25 increments. Deposit and eligibility restrictions apply. See terms at DKHorse.com. All right, thank you, Courtney. Excellent stuff. Brandon, before we get to our favorite part of the show, I need to deliver on a promise here. I said there were two big sports stories in the world today, and I meant it. We got the first one, which was Tiger Woods and company getting ready to meet to try and combat their enemies and live golf. Do you know what the second biggest story in the world of sports is, Brandon? I think I do, but I do want you to tell me. Uh, The biggest story in sports is Ole Miss football has a 6'1", 250-pound uh, punter named Charlie Pollock, who they apparently, according to Lane Kiffin, quote, I don't know a whole lot about him. I think he was down at a frat house, like at a keg party or something, where they got him from. So we're going to have some conditioning to work with do with my guy. But apparently, Brandon, what? Ole Miss football desperately needed a punter. They didn't have one on the team. And so much like when we were at Notre Dame yes. and David Ruffer, who ended up going on, going on, to become a finalist for the, um, it's not the Lou Groza for kickers, is it? I think it is, isn't that? I forget which one's the punting award. It might be the Groza award. Anyway, whatever the finalist for the award for kickers, best kicker in college football is, our former teammate and kicker, David Ruffer, was one time called off the street because Notre Dame was in desperate need of quality kicking on campus, and so they held open tryouts, and David Ruffer, who was a member of Notre Dame's inner hall football team for the Siegfried Ramblers, go Ramblers, uh, ended up coming onto our team and was like a legitimate Rudy story where he walked on and then became a very great kicker for us at Notre Dame. Apparently Ole Miss needed some of that same home cooking and went on down to frat row and got themselves an absolute beauty of a kicker. Yes, uh, shout out to Off the Street, one of the greatest nicknames uh, that we had at Notre Dame. And you are right, Lou Groza is for the uh, Collegiate Place Kicker Award. So I love that the, I love that you just thought you were wrong because it was kickers, but it was right because it's football. Amen. And we love we love being right because it's football. Now, the sort of, you know, how the sausage is made on this one is funny because while we love the idea that Charlie Pollock is just some frat star that's able to go out here and absolutely mash punts, and by the way, shout out to Twitter's very own Bunky Perkins for the nickname that should stick. It's Frat McAfee. It's Ooh, so perfect. Yes. At Gojo Show on Twitter, if anyone can come up with a better nickname than that, I'm all ears. But, Brandon, the funny part is, is 
this guy was actually the number 13 punter in the nation in 2020's recruiting class, signed with Nevada out of high school to punt there, and then apparently got himself done and decided he wanted to just come down to Oxford and have a good time at the SIP anyway. And so now he's just going to play some football on the side of that. I I love it. I love it. That's, gosh, man, won't he do it? He thought he, he thought his story was ended. Man. The guy was like, you know what? I got something for you. I got something for you. Fred McAfee. Man, listen, God knew we had a void in our hearts left by Matt Areza now that he is a member of the NFL's Buffalo Bills. And so he delivered his large booming son to us in the form of Fred McAfee at Ole Miss. Won't, and I cannot stress this enough, he do it. Uh, Brandon, before we get to our favorite part of the show here, won't he do it in delivering us affordable sunglasses that look very good? Yes. Our friends at Knockaround Sunglasses, man, let me tell you, you guys have delivered at Gojo Show on Twitter. We've asked you to send us pictures of you in your knockarounds looking great. And boy, oh boy, have some of you guys delivered here. And that's easy to do because Knockaround's polarized sunglasses that only cost about $30 a pair also happen to look great. There are 15 different frames in a variety of colors, so there is something for actually everyone. Tons of custom options. You can customize the front, the arms, the lenses, the logo color. You can design a pair for game day to match your favorite team as we head towards football season because there's over a billion possible combinations in the Knockaround custom shop. They are perfect for going for a run. I did so yesterday because they are lightweight. You can see clearly. They've got the little rubber nose thing so you don't slip, slide, or bounce when you're on your way there. Knock around sunglasses. High quality, polarized sunglasses at a truly affordable price. Check out their huge range of shades at knockaround.com. And keep tweeting me pictures. I promise. I, I do not tire of this. I posted a thirsty picture of me mocking LeBron James's meme. Uh, can't believe this is my life yesterday. You can do it too. It feels good. But, Brandon, you know what feels even better? Asking this question. Do you know what time it is? One, two, three, uh. My baby don't mess around because she loves me showing this. I know for sure. But does she really want to buck and stand to see me walk out the door? Don't try to fight the feeling Cause the thought alone is killing me right now Thank God for mom and dad for sticking two together Cause we don't know how This, that, and the third This, that uh -oh. Man, had me shaking it over here and everything. Whew. All right, Brandon Newman, bringing the A game. As always, download, subscribe, rate, and review Gojo wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. Tell Brandon how much you love his yes. work here. And Brandon, we got to start off hey. with uh, hey. this. This might be a segue, Mike. Feed my ego. Go ahead, yeah, come on, come on, come on, come on. Do your thing, Mike. Do your thing, Mike. Wow. Do your thing, Wody. All right, Brandon. Uh, so yesterday, we talked about it on the show uh, earlier when we got the news that it was coming out here. Uh, Netflix series Untold, which deals with some of the biggest stories and most infamous stories in the world of sports over the years. 
decided to turn its sights on our former teammate and Notre Dame linebacker, Manti Teo. The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist is the official title of the two-part Netflix documentary series chronicling the fake girlfriend hoax that I lived through as a fifth-year senior at Notre Dame on the 2012 team that made the run to the BCS National Championship. Manti was the runner-up for the Heisman that year and was also the subject of a catfishing scam that this documentary goes and documents. Now, Brandon, it's worth noting, we talked about it then, Don Van Notto over at ESPN did, uh, I believe it was technically an E60 piece, or uh, whatever you know, franchise it fell right. under. Don Van Nata was doing the documentary over at ESPN. Manti was supposed to be a part of that and then wasn't, and then, in theory, came over to Netflix to tell his own story here. So, um, Brandon, I have some thoughts on this, but I know you're very passionate about this. So you watched at least the first part of this. I've watched the whole thing. So what were your thoughts based off the first rip here? Uh, I want to say that because you were you were also teammates with Manti, but you just weren't there for this particular 2012 season. When well, like that's why I do want to say that I was going to say that it, obviously you did live through it on the team, but this is one of those things that we all live through, unfortunately, uh, and especially those who played football with Manti at any point in time. Mike, I still remember the day that he signed. Uh, we were in North Dining Hall, and we saw it on the TV. And all I, all I remember saying was, oh, well, if Manti is deciding to come to Notre Dame, then he needs to be at Notre Dame. He's a Notre Dame dude. Like, I thought, I thought it was cute that the guys that Notre Dame was trying to get this huge linebacker out of SC or that was uh, out of Hawaii that was clearly going to go to, going, going to, go to SC uh, to play football. But my, while I was at Ball State and this all went down, Manti was on the front cover of Sports Illustrated and everyone knew who Manti was. So I think we all kind of went through this. I just kind of put it in the back of my mind and try to uh, push through it because it, was, it wasn't it was a bright spot in Notre Dame football history. And I think that's something that we had worked a lot <laughs> to try to bring to the to the forefront by the time we, we got up out of there. Well, I think that's the interesting part is I watch like even watching this as someone who lived through this, like all those pep rallies you saw, the games, like I was there, thankfully not on camera anywhere, but it it was interesting. I'd forgotten how big this was even during the season, Mm. Brandon, because that year was my, you know, second, my first full year as a starter from like game one on. I started 17 games while I was at Notre Dame, three the previous year, and then the 13 that season. And I was so like in the tunnel focused on my own stuff. Like my job was not one that like I held on to with a firm grip. It was one I had to kind of keep going after every week. It's that JJ rent, uh, JJ Watt line about rent being due every day. Like it really felt like that for me the whole season. So I was so focused on handling my own shit that it was like, all right, you know, you had seen this stuff that happened with Manti and you're obviously sympathetic to an extent when one of your teammates comes to practice and tells you, Hey, my grandmother or my girlfriend died in the same day, but Manti was not a guy I was real close with. And so that sympathy beyond, you know, one teammate to another in the locker room didn't really then occupy a ton of my headspace that season. So the first thing I thought was it was kind of weird me forgetting just how big that was, even at the time, even before we got to Katie Couric and all that stuff and the interview after the but season. I mean, yeah, it was big during the time, obviously, because I was I was texting you about it 
I was texting Cap. Cap was in that video quite a bit. Uh, he's ca captain of that Notre Dame football team as well, as well as Manti. Capron Lewis Nor Moore, former uh, yes, former and uh, Notre Dame defensive and end. And Mike, I remember texting Tommy Reese about it during the time while I was at Ball State, and it was it was just. All eyes were on Notre Dame for the right reasons, I thought, uh, especially, you know, we had really done it. It was a 3-9 and nine season before <laughs> five years later when Manti and you guys would go undefeated and, and fight for the national championship. So it, we kind of really did change everything. Manti was obviously a big part of that, but it was, it was very – he was a huge part of that. Like off off ball linebackers do not have seven interceptions in a college football no. season. Like it was insane. And as as we've said before, we were we were a dead dog average college football team for the first four years that you and I were on campus. And then that last year we caught lightning in a bottle, and it was incredible. And we had a veteran team, and we had a guy like that who had an insane college football season and was a damn good college football player. Like in yeah. the documentary, they point to his pro career and a lot of things about it. You know, part of it just was the things Manti could get away with in college. Athletically, he couldn't get away with in the NFL. True. So, Brandon, watching this, it was surprising to me because it was kind of like the first time you watch Rudy after being a Notre Dame student, where you spend the whole time ooing and eyeing at the things on oh campus you recognize. Gosh. But this was happening with people and events that I was a part no. of. I thought... The first half of the documentary did a really poor job of setting up a timeline. It was kind of all over Ooh, the place. Great point. And chronologically, it did a bad job, I thought, of keeping that online. The second part was a lot better. The second part diving into the aftermath of it, I thought was sensational entertainment. Like, again, as someone who lived through all of this, like Robbie Toma, who you guys saw as Manti's teammate and best friend from high school, was a guy I was with. It was the blue-gray all-star game became the Stars and Stripes games. It's like, think below the Senior Bowl, below the NFL PA game, below everything else was this game that you know me and the other like third-string uh, hopeful pros are playing in. And the news broke that week, and I was there with Robbie Toma. And so it was he and I in a bunker getting mocked mercilessly by SEC and Big Ten players everywhere. So we had that going on. So I, I had a front-row view to that part, and it was still riveting to me but we were down there that week and I was there with Manti when this happened so I was around when it broke and I was still riveted by how they laid out all of the information surrounding this and you know Lene Kakua who now goes by Naya who's transitioning and you know going through her own transition and a major one in life but Brandon I would say the the big things that stuck out to me in that were that it didn't seem like this person in Naya, who certainly was dealing with their own, you know, identity issues and not being able to be who they were in their environment, there seemed to be a real lack of on-screen remorse for all of the pain and suffering that they had caused another person. Because, man, the levels to this hoax were something I hadn't considered and a reminder of, like, how chaotic... You know, even back then, early internet was when it came to these yeah. things, when it came to like thinking about old school chat rooms, the way that we dealt with this stuff and how you could do this at that point in time. Um, that certainly stuck out. But the other part was also like coming back to, and I know I've brought this up before, like Manti was 21 when this happened. Man. Like 
This is a 21-year-old person who, like a lot of young people in college, is kind of doing their own identity thing and maybe a little bit insecure about stuff. And with Manti, it clearly manifests in some bravado. Like, he was supposed to be the star football player and tried very much. Like, the hero complex very much stands out in the way that he addresses a bunch of this along the way. But then I just go back to, like, man, he's 21. And I remember running into Manti at a Notre Dame game and seeing him on the sideline probably like four or five years ago now. And just kind of being around him, it already felt like I was talking to a very different person. He was years into an NFL career that had kind of humbled him at that point. And so it is just kind of that reminder like that for all the conversation and they spent so much of the second part of this documentary asking all the questions and replaying all the news footage of people like asking him, you know, was he complicit in it? Was this Manti covering up for being gay? All these different things. It's like this to me still as someone who saw it up close and who has seen it covered now in a multitude of ways still looks like a young person who was ultimately in a situation trying to, I think, make something that was abnormal seem a lot more normal. You see and hear interviews from his family who talked about this. It seemed like a young guy trying to make something that was abnormal to his family and other people seem a lot more normal during the time, and then it just spiraled out of control when a season became something that no one could have predicted for Notre Dame Yeah, Mike, I can understand it spiraling out of control. I, I honestly can, and I understand where that's coming from. But for me, my mind's, like, where I'm coming from, I've had conversations with Manti in the dorm because we were both honestly unhappy at Notre Dame and we we're just kind of, and they talk, Notre Dame talks, uh, Manti talks about that a little bit in the doc and we were just in the dorm sulking and whatever stuff. And he would talk to me about his girlfriend uh, who lives in California and how close he was to her brother and her brother played football and X, Y, and Z Mike. And at the time, when the news broke, I thought this was just a, a separate situation. I was like, oh, I guess Manti always gets really close to his girlfriend's brothers. And, you know, that that's how, you know, Manti rocks. But I didn't consider the fact that he had been getting gamed for this long. That that this person in this relationship yeah. was so important to him for so long that the person that I knew Manti was dating or he was talking to me about dating was this person who he never met before. Mike, and I and obviously we're living in an age where that isn't as important when it comes to relationships. But for me, for in Manti's shoes, I can't, like I said, I can't put myself in his shoes. I, I don't understand what that's like. I was I was watching everyone, the, the, the him become this megastar at Notre Dame. But I just I just can't, I don't think he ever should have said his girlfriend passed about a, a of a relationship with a with a woman that he thought he was speaking to that he never met before, Mike. Like I just can't. Like I understand that he was really close to this person, but to go out there and call her his girlfriend when the the truth of the matter is they had never met in person. And then also that first half that I saw, Mike, the part one, the timeline was so off because for some reason we decided that in the narrative we were going to be in the mindset of Manti. Like we were going to be thinking like Manti, thinking this this person was important when like in all actuality, like we're over here looking at who's actually speaking to. So it was very confusing to me of like, what is this? If, if, the, if the documentary had an agenda, what is that agenda? That's what I felt. I, I, was, I was left 
Oh, I mean, it, it. It, ha- it had an agenda. It was it was telling it from exactly Manti's perspective. There's the reason he was over at Netflix and not doing it sure. with ESPN. It was because he certainly, like, I went into this figuring this is going to be something that tried to sell Manti in a favorable light. Like, that part seemed pretty predictable based on how this had gone about going into it. But even still, like, I, I don't know. I guess I can kind of understand that. Like, again, you got this person you've been talking to and think you're close with. You're kind of trying, like... There's clearly something there where you're talking to this person over a long enough time and you want to make it normal and the feelings all still yeah. seem to hit somehow. So I, I can't I can't claim to understand it, Brandon. But again, it was one of those things that, like you said, I didn't even notice because I wasn't close to Manti until senior year when that news dropped. Like we had heard little bits about this girl and the story about him meeting her out at Stanford yeah. and all that stuff that was, you know... It, that I don't even think made it into this, but oh, they, they, the it USC. was never something that I knew as much as the depth about. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I just oh yeah, the US, the USC meeting yeah, the too. Meet with the with the little girl. Yeah, so that's I didn't, I didn't consider the fact that how much Manti was really just getting strung along. But like, yeah, I, I don't listen. It's a weird situation, and I understand that that uh, the story needs to be told, and I'm and I'm glad it's out there in the way it is, but. Damn, Mike, like, I, I just, I walked away from that thing thinking this never would have happened and maybe never should have happened if somebody was giving Manti the right advice in the real, in real time. Yeah, it's, it, it is one of those things where you look back and you go, and that was part of this too, like, in the second part of this the folks from Deadspin who ended up breaking the original story on this, basically, like, the guy tried to talk about how he used to work with Anonymous, and he was this hacker, and, like, everything they found was through Google. He was going back and doing the work that apparently a bunch of high-level journalistic outfits hadn't gone and done. Like, this is also a story about a media that was more than happy to go and have this grand story of redemption for a football player and not really push back on it. Right, and honestly, that's the same thing for Manti with Lene Kakula. Like, it was like, this person was feeding... Like, I was talking to Michelle during, I was like, I didn't know that Manti was being like gamed up to think he was a god off the field too like the whole thing about him speaking her back to life after a car accident mike like that's the type of shit that i was like yeah the the car accident leukemia thing was wild that's that's what i'm trying to say like i was like wait a minute 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 these are all instances of him going through something with this person like I, i i'm sorry like I know Manta had a bunch of other stuff going on. He had, and obviously they talk about how rocky the relationship was because, like, Manta had a bunch of other stuff going on. Like I said, to the point where this person's alleged passing shouldn't have made it in the news, in my opinion. Well, and. You know what? It probably wouldn't have, again, had we not been so good. Like, that probably would have been a blurb had we not been so good. All of this happens because we and he were so good. Like, the part you mentioned about the God complex is real, especially for high-level athletes. Like, it's the John Mulaney bit about Mick Jagger. Like, is Mick Jagger a nice guy? Maybe. But he's been on stage for 20 years being told that he's the greatest thing ever. And Manti says as much in there. And, like, you can see it in the way he talks. Like, we all want to be the hero of our own story, but very few of us actually get to be in the way he was on the field for a little bit. So that part of it, 
certainly got to the point that we got in this. I will say, uh, one, Manti Teo's dad lost a bunch of weight and looks oh, great. yeah. Number two, Robbie Toma, our former teammate, had an excellent Hawaiian shirt on and also appears to be doing well. And man alive, Manti's cousin Shiloh, I don't know how that dude didn't put a hand up here because you find out he was the one that Manti hit up to find out if this girl was legit or not, and he gave him the okay on that. Buddy, like, uh, like a my bad is probably at least in order. It was like, man, I mean, they started ta- ta- talking for real and took off. So I was like, let me step back. You know what I mean? I'm let let Manti do his thing. <laughs> like, took my girl. That was the low key part. He was like, yeah, I was running game out here. Like, you know, I c- I could have had right. her, but Manti started talking. So I was like, nah, you got this. Oh man, he lobbed him. That was like the remember the Titans let him through right. of online Shiloh dating. Over here is like you know y'all know y'all know Manti's girlfriend. I, yeah, I warmed I warmed her up for for, for man, yeah you know what I'm saying. <laughs> she was really feeling me first, but like <laughs> you know I just I decided he needed this one, so I let oh, him have man. this thing. So but like all those stories on the also shout out in the series. It's just a weird story, man. Like at the at the heart of it, it's a really weird story. It was it was a very weird story here. Shout out! There's an amazing appearance by Doctor Phil in the second part of this. The dramatic reveal that it is Doctor Phil might have been my favorite part of the entire docu series. But again, man, it was just. It was crazy to kind of go back and relive this. Like, I watched it with a group of our friends from Notre Dame who all had graduated. They were in our graduating class, so they weren't there. Like, this is my fifth year senior fall. There was a few of us left from our class on an island. And so during the documentary, as things are going on, everyone's just looking over at me, like, looking for, like, the nod of approval. Like, was this how it happened? Is this actually what happened? And so... It's it's one of those weird things, man. I didn't anticipate a documentary being made in 2022 about this, but, you know, we'll see. You live and you learn. So, you know, check it out or don't. It's a 10-year-old story that for some reason is getting life in the news cycle in the last few years. Go figure. Uh, Brandon, let's get to that. Um, that is LeBron James out here becoming a recruiting dad. And part of becoming a recruiting dad is having to address rumors about your son going out here being a crew. And apparently for LeBron James, that includes addressing rumors about LeBron James Jr.'s apparent ties to the University of Oregon. I believe according to On3.com, they said that the Oregon Ducks have emerged as the front runner for the services of one Bronny James Jr. And LeBron James quote tweeted this from Bleacher Report Hoops and said he hasn't taken one visit yet and has only had a few calls with coaches and universities. When Bronny makes his choice, you'll hear it from him. Hashtag James Gang. And Brandon, I love the aging LeBron James having to start to deal with these things in recruiting. That he ne- like he never got the recruiting process in high school. So we talk about parents living vicariously through their kids all the time. LeBron getting to be a high-profile recruit through his son is going to be fascinating internet content. Oh, yeah, and it's also going to lead to a question uh, questionable decision for Bronny James in my opinion like I think LeBron wants to be in college so bad he's going to force him there when Bronny Jr. may benefit from doing the LaMelo ball thing and going overseas and and playing elite league or or spend some time in the G League like uh, Dwayne Wade's son is so I don't know it's I feel like his hands LeBron James' tentacles is in everything I feel like he's going to be way too close to the situation where, where his son's going to end up playing basketball so that he can, you know, inevitably be on the same team with LeBron. 
or be in the NBA at the same time. I hope LeBron's off that whole same team stuff, like the same way LeVar Ball is. <laughs> oh, there ain't no way he's off that same team stuff. By the way, LeBron James Jr., Bronny Jr. got some monster highlights out there yamming all over folks playing True. in some EuroLeague this summer. Like, he is approaching that boy nice range. Um, but as far as the decision, it is going to be interesting, Brandon, how this goes down. Because the first thing I thought of when I saw Oregon as the potential school involved was, okay, so the shoe contract's going to dictate this. Oh, because Pop oh. Phil Knight is obviously the big money bag over at Oregon when LeBron James for years has been, you know, Northeast Ohio guy. Like, LeBron James always talked about Ohio State as if it was his alma mater, more or less. Like, if he right. had gone and played college ball, that was always the insinuation. And so, I don't want to discount that LeBron James Jr. has some agency in this process, but I looked up at that and I thought, hmm, I guess that lifetime Nike contract has other things that come along with it, potentially, and at least some sort of tie to Phil Knight's favorite school might be one oh, of those. I, Mike, when I saw the news, I was like, oh, this is, uh, you know, this is some kind of alternate universe version of nepotism where you go to your grandfather's college because that's what Phil Knight is essentially to the Jameses, I would imagine. Well, that's what I mean. Everyone at school, and I remember this. We went through this with Kayvon Thibodeau. I think they call they all call him Uncle, like he's Uncle Phil. Yeah. To the guys at Oregon that are like good enough to know him on that campus, so. Certainly wouldn't be too sh wouldn't be too shocking to see it play out that way there, but this is wild to see. We just went through the Arch Manning recruiting process and basically got nothing out of the Manning family. True. Like it was as quiet and closed off a recruiting process. And while we see LeBron at these games and in a lot of the videos, this also hasn't been a recruiting process that up until now has received a ton of publicity. So it'll just be interesting because we have arguably two of the most famous high school recruits in our lifetime coming up around the same time in Arch Manning, who's the son of all that NFL greatness, and LeBron James Jr., who's the son of, you know, at worst, the second greatest basketball player at to worst. ever live. At worst. All right, Brandon, let's get to the third here. And uh, this is important, important stuff. So we've got a young man on the precipice of greatness. Uh, an eight-year-old boy known as Mullet Boy is getting set to compete in the USA Mullet Championship here. Uh, Emmett Bailey, known as Mullet Boy... Got the chance to show off his hairstyle through the opening pitch at the Euclid Express Collegiate Baseball game this summer. His father, Eric Bailey, told everyone how important a moment that was, told the fine folks at WEAU locally there, and said, I'm pretty excited. It's a pretty big deal. Um, he is part of the kids' division in the USA Mullet Championships. And Brandon, I'm always a huge fan of obscure sports championships. I believe the Mullet Championship also works closely with the fine folks over at Major League Eating who put on the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest. But uh, Brandon, this does give us a chance to explore the uh, illustrious history of mullets here first off Please. is the mullet championship anything that interests you is there anything about this that grabs you because if not i will just start ripping off facts about mullets um absolutely business in the front party in the back i went to high school in louisville kentucky plenty of mullets around um and this little boy's from wisconsin so you know i'm rooting for him and the little boy does essentially look like Guy Fieri if he were a kid. 
He's got an incredible blonde flowing mane. He's got the reflective like uh, rainbow sunglasses. He's an absolute beauty. But Brandon, one of the things I learned calling the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest for two years was these leagues for we would call them more obscure sports tend to do a great job selling themselves on the website and the mullet championship is no exception to that here. They provide a brief and glowing history of mullets. Listen to this beautiful opening stanza of their history of mullets. This business in the front, party in the back style has been around way before it was popularized by actors and rock stars in the 1980s. According to some historians, the mullet has been around since at least ancient Greece, where the style was as much for function as it was for fashion. Cropped hair around the face with longer locks in the back allowed for both visibility and a protective layer of hair for your neck. Homer even described a haircut that sounded eerily familiar in the Iliad. Quote, their forelocks cropped, hair grown long at backs. The Greeks weren't the only ones sporting the mullet, though there's evidence that Neanderthals and our oldest ancestors were the do as well. Now, they obviously document the popular history, and this I didn't know, Brandon, about the actual naming of this hairstyle. Mullets have been present, they go on to say, throughout our history as a species, but it wasn't until the 1970s that mullets got starting rise to modern fame. They reached their peak in the 80s with George Clooney, Metallica's James Hatfield, and others sporting one. It was popular to white dudes who played rock music or hockey mostly, and the hairstyle didn't actually have the name Mullet until 1994. Really? When the Beastie Boys released a song called Mullet Head. Not long after the name Mullet was christened, the hairdo was already on its way out. But yeah, it did, according to the Mullet Championship website, the Beastie Boys get credit in 1994 for actually giving the haircut its name. Mike D, DJ Ad Rock, and I'm sorry, I forgot the third Beastie Boys name, but that's amazing and so funny that the white boys of rap, the initial white boys of rap, were the people that named mullets in the first place. You gotta fight for your right to party. Love it. They do also list a top 10 most iconic moments with the top five being John Stamos during his Full House days, Billy Ray Cyrus, Patrick Swayze, Paul McCartney, Sir Paul McCartney, and number one on the list, Mr. Ziggy Stardust, his own, David Bowie, sitting at number one there. I would also say I had the good fortune to work alongside Barry Melrose at ESPN, illustrious lid on that guy, an incredible ironclad mullet. Seeing that in person was an absolute beauty. My Uncle Bob sported a mullet for years as both a member of the Cleveland Browns and the part of the Saved by the Bell, the college years cast. So it's a hairstyle certainly near and dear to the family, certainly near and dear to many. And we wish this eight-year-old boy luck in the U.S. Mullet Championships. Um, Oh, you thought I was about to say something? I did think you were about to say something, Brandon. So instead, I'm going to say something, which is we also hope that young man stays healthy along the way. And as a way to potentially do that, he can get some help from our friends at Dr. Emil Nutrition. They believe getting healthy should make you feel better, not just someday, but every day. And who knows? It might even help your mullet grow because, again, taking care of yourself and feeling good all the time, getting the proper amount of sleep, using their easy-dose sleep support to get you a quality night's sleep that promotes cell regeneration and detoxification and boosts your immune system are all things that, in general, in health, will help you grow healthy hair. 
And so maybe a great mullet can be something that comes with taking care of yourself through our friends at Dr. Emil's. They're an array of high-quality natural natural supplements were hand-selected to enhance each aspect of your personal wellness journey. Visit DrAmilNutrition.com and use our discount code GOJO20 for 20% off plus free shipping on all orders. That's Dr. Emil spelled D-R-E-M-I-L. Dot com. Brandon, we always appreciate everyone that makes it this far in the podcast with us that grows their mullet down to this particular length. Make sure you download, subscribe, rate, and review Gojo wherever you get your podcast. Unsubscribe, resubscribe, leave us a five-star rating and a review. We thank you so much. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.